dearest listeners, it is a sad episode today. Today is the day after the summer solstice. Our longest day has passed. The nights are drawing in. And if you're listening to this on the British Isles, then you're probably like me and wondering why we never really got summer anyway. Well, there is some good news. Because... From now, right up until the sunlight begins to stretch back out again, I, David Oakes, will be here holding your hand, for I have a native tree for you burgeoning with arboreal folklore and ripe with botanical whimsy right up until the winter solstice. That's a whole six months of trees, a crowd. Wonderful and not a little intimidating. But if you're listening to this in the southern hemisphere, Jimmy, you know who you are, Play this introduction in reverse, or whilst doing a handstand, or with Tenet playing in the background. I really don't mind, because this isn't strictly about your trees. It's about ours, or to be more precise. Oh, the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. It's a fascinating species this week, and in my book, once cultivated one of the very tastiest. This week, we are looking at... Wild pear, wild pear. Wild pears, the native-ish trees of the genus Pyrus. Not including the ornamentals, which may have escaped from our nation's many fine garden centres, there are three pear species found growing in the wild in Britain today. They are the wild pear... Pyrus pyrasta, the European pear, Pyrus communis, and the Plymouth pear, Pyrus cordata. But I'm afraid to say that none of our wild pears are in fact native, probably. One wild pear is almost certainly an archaeophyte, another has even more recently become naturalised, and the other... well, no one can entirely agree upon what exactly is happening down in Plymouth. There's a joke in there somewhere. Wild pear number one. The wild pear, Pyrus pyraster, is native to much of mainland Europe, but can also be found growing wild scattered all across Britain. It was originally introduced very early on for cultivation. Carbonised pear pips have been found at numerous Neolithic sites, so this is very definitely an archaeophyte, a species, although not strictly native, one which was introduced to our islands by early man. Pyrasta is fairly easy to distinguish from other pears. For one, the tree is extremely prickly, possessing thorns upon its branches, and for two, its fruits are round, not pear-shaped at all, which is great for telling it apart from the European pear, but pretty rubbish if you want to quickly tell it apart from a crab apple next week's tree, for the crab and the wild pear can look incredibly similar. Perhaps the easiest way to tell the two apart is to take a bite of the fruit. The grittier texture of the wild pear is an instant giveaway. But if you've neither wild pear nor crab apple on hand to nibble and compare, then take a look at the leaves. Both have identically serrated leaf margins, but the leaves of the wild pear are almost circular, incredibly round, whereas the crabs are a little more elongated. And for those with a keener botanical eye, the presence of only three styles and pear flowers compared to the crabapple's usual five is a very clear way to tell them apart. Now, the fruit of the wild pear, as well as being spheroid and particularly gritty, are small and incredibly sour. This made the wild pear, historically, very unpopular for cultivation. So when man got a little pickier about the sweetness of his comestibles, another pear was sought out. 
Wild pair number two, the European pair, Pyrus communis. Communis is thought to have been introduced for cultivation in Britain from Europe in around 995 AD, although some people think maybe the Romans brought it over a little earlier. Since then, the original species has naturalised well in the wild and can now be found commonly in hedges and waste ground. But it is from this species that most orchard pear cultivars are derived. So if you eat pears or drink perry, it almost certainly comes from a cultivar of communis, the European pear. Ancient scholars and philosophers wrote surprisingly extensively about the cultivation of this pear. Aristotle's successor Theophrastus wrote about this pear, Pliny the Elder wrote about this pear, and Homer himself said of this pear that it was a gift from the gods. A quick aside here, actually it's not that quick, I spent a whole day digging up information about all the unique cultivars of orchard pears that we eat around the world today in the hope I could find something stunning and share some trivia about their wonderfully mysterious names. The list includes the Conference Pear, the Williams Pear, and even the Vicar of Winkfield Pear. But the more you dig, the more you realise that the men who historically cultivated orchard pears, the pear forebears, are dull or egotistical, or worst of all, dull and egotistical. For example, the conference pair won a prize at a pair conference and so became called the conference pair. Dull. There was once a vicar in Winkfield who grew a pair and called it the Vicar of Winkfield pair. Almost funny, but actually just egotistical. And a pear cultivar called the Stair Pear, grown by a man called John Stair, was acquired by a Mr Williams and was rebranded the Williams Pear. And when this already twice named by Ego Pear was taken to America, a man called Enoch Bartlett decided it best for all concerned to call it the Bartlett Pear. Dull and thrice egotistical. At least the full true name of the Williams slash Bartlett slash Stair Pear, the Williams Bonchretien Pear, pays homage to a good Christian, the Bonchretien, and provides a short tale of some note. A Calabrian holy man, the good Christian Francis of Paola, was summoned to the deathbed of King Louis XI of France to provide God-given medical aid. He instead gave Louis a pear pip, and Louis died. That's it, that's the story. But this act of pear share, at least in the Williams's full name, went on to christen this cultivar. To be honest, I'm being a tad disingenuous, or at least I am about the conference pair. The full story is genuinely quite interesting. Due to the invention of refrigeration devices, which is how all good stories start, and of railways and of steamships, at the end of the 19th century, the British fruit industry was struggling to keep going against the vast imports of fruit from America. As such, the Royal Horticultural Society decided to run a propaganda campaign to promote British fruit and in 1883 held a National Apple Conference, and in 1885 a National Pear Conference, and then another event in 1888 in Chiswick for both apples and pears together. Now it is at this third and most thrilling of conferences that Thomas Francis Rivers presented a pear, unconventionally not named for him, but it won first prize and became known as the Conference Pear. Self-fertile, scab-resistant and tolerant of poor seasons, the conference pear now provides more than 90% of British pears and help turn the tide against those dastardly American pear farmers. 
Right, to pull us back onto talking about British wild pears, this European pear, communis, from which all orchard pears derive, if you go back far enough, thank you genetic research, is actually the descendant of both our wild pear, Pyrasta, and another pear species from the Caucasus, Pyrus caucasica. But as you're unlikely to find this Caucasian pear growing wild in Britain, I won't dig much further into that, just to say that in my mind, Pyrus pyrasta, therefore, is the one proper, native-ish, wild-ish pear that gets my pear-flavoured juices properly flowing. But then, there's wild British pear number three, the oddball, the Plymouth pear, Pyrus cordata. The Plymouth pear is a very, very rare pear, one of the rarest trees in all of the UK, in fact. It was first discovered in Plymouth in 1870, and besides a small population found nearby Truro in 1989, it is only found in the hedgerows around Plymouth. Lucky Plymouth. Its rarity is due, in part, to poor gene diversity, as these two pockets of plants, the one in Plymouth and the one in Truro, only have each other to breed with. Despite this, some botanists hang on to the belief that these remnant populations could be all that remains of our only true native species. That said, due to it being found wider afield across Western Europe, most sensible botanists now subscribe to the view that it is not native whatsoever, but was imported comparatively recently from Brittany as a hedging plant. So we should perhaps do better to call the Plymouth pear the Brittany hedge pear. Poor Plymouth. That said, the smell of the Plymouth pear's blossom has been described as being like rotten, scampy, or even soiled sheets, so perhaps its limited numbers in Britain is a good thing. Hooray for Plymouth again. Anyway, environmentally speaking, all three of our wild pears are great. Insects love the nectar, whilst badgers, hedgehogs, etc. love devouring the fruits. But in history and in folklore, the symbolism of the pear is at best a little mixed. In Greek mythology, the pear was sacred to Hera, the mother to all of the Olympian gods and stepmother to Heracles. You'll remember him from our Poplar episodes. Hera was revered as the goddess of childbirth and of marriage, but renowned for her jealousy and her vengefulness. Need I mention that Greek myth was almost wholly concocted by men. Anyway, to put her jealousy and vengefulness in perspective... She tried to stop Heracles from being born by tying his mother's legs together. She then tried to kill him at the age of two by slipping some poisonous snakes into his nursery. And then, to cap it all off, she drove Heracles mad, which led to him committing matricide and infanticide, and led to his penance of the Twelve Labours. So, I guess, in a roundabouts kind of way, we have Hera to thank not only for the pear tree, but also Heracles's sweaty white poplar too. Shakespeare as well, ever the classicist, riffs on the themes of Pear as life-giver and Pear as life-destroyer. Paroles in All's Well That Ends Well says... Your virginity, your old virginity, is like one of our French withered pears. It looks ill. It eats dryly. French withered pears, here not simply meaning old fruits, but also arguably a metaphor for a syphilitic vagina lovely. They teach Shakespeare in primary schools. Awesome. Thank you to Adam Sop there for giving his voice to the pair, and he will be back next week with our crab apple. And in China, where they have a number of their own native pears, the pear is simultaneously a symbol for immortality, 
whilst on the flip side, the destruction of a pear tree can bring about a premature death for the person who kills it. Also, quite brilliantly, the words Fen Li are a Mandarin homophone. Who knew you'd learn a Mandarin homophone when you woke up this morning? Fen Li can mean either sharing a pear or separation, making it extremely superstitiously poor fortune to share the fruit, or I guess a glass of perry, with anyone you'd like to stick around a little longer. One final ominous pear tale to end this week's episode involves the Untersberg Massif in the Alps, a prominent spur straddling the border between Germany and Austria, one made particularly famous by Julie Andrews singing at it at the very beginning of The Sound of Music. Now, according to legend, the great medieval Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa remains asleep deep inside Mount Untersberg. Awaiting resurrection, his beard continues to grow and grow, supposedly preparing for some kind of hirsute end of days. Anyway, when his beard has wrapped thrice around his massive, massive round table, he will awake, and the final bloody battle of humankind will be fought. A battle fought on the site of a single European pear tree on the Volserfeld, a pasture to the west of nearby Salzburg. Moving marginally closer to the realm of reality, this pear tree was supposedly planted in 1800 to commemorate the Battle of the Volserfeld, a battle between the French and Imperial Austrian troops. Indeed, pear trees were often planted to commemorate battles, and these commemorative trees became known as bloody pears. One such bloody pear was planted in Worcestershire to commemorate the Battle of Evesham in 1265, one of the two largest battles of the Second Barons' War. It was said that the fruit that this bloody pear bore was streaked red with the blood of all those that had been massacred. I'll put a link to an image on our website of a 13th century drawing which shows, at the Battle of Evesham, the subsequent death and mutilation of Simon de Montfort. It will give you a whole new perspective upon what a pear can represent. He had his testicles removed and put in his mouth. But back to the Volserfeld pear. It is said that this tree only flourished whilst the Holy Roman Empire stood. And in 1806, when the empire ended and changed seats with the Confederation of the Rhine, the tree seemingly died. But fortunately for us, before Barbarossa could get his beard and gear to end humankind, a new German empire was established in 1871. Otto von Bismarck became the first imperial chancellor of a unified German empire, and this individual, Pyrrhus Communis, despite having stood seemingly dead for 60 years, burst once more into glorious flower and glorious fruit. So there you have it, a tale of some pears and tales of some pear trees, none of which can unfortunately be branded with any confidence as being strictly native to the British Isles whatsoever, but... Keep hunting long enough and you may well just find an odd pear growing wild in Britain, or better still, in Plymouth. Or, hang on, is it a crab apple? Speaking of which, it is the crab apple next week. Thank you for listening. Join our Patreon, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or email audio of your children singing Bella's theme tune. And we will see you next week. Bye bye for now. The secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the bridge.